Welcome to the Headspace Podcast, where we attempt to make sense of our never-ending existential crisis through the lens of artistic expression. You have no idea what loss is. Everyone I have cared for has either died or left me. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the Headspace Podcast. I am your host, Xavier Reichbaum, founder of Headspace Productions, a multimedia production company specializing in film and theater. And today, on this episode of the podcast, episode three, we are going to be talking about the film Whiplash, directed by Damien Chazelle, the one and only. Whiplash has been one of my favorite movies for the longest time, pretty much ever since I first saw it. It really stuck with me, it really resonated with me, everything about it, I sort of saw it at the perfect time in my life when I was really, really starting to understand filmmaking and starting to be able to make my own projects that looked actually somewhat okay and didn't look like the stupid amateur short films that I had been making throughout uh, middle school. And so I really did see it at the perfect time in my life to be able to fully appreciate it. And I'm also just a massive fan of Damien Chazelle. I believe La La Land was actually the first Damien Chazelle film that I ever saw. And I was allowed to watch that. Whiplash was one of the ones that my family didn't allow me to watch. And they told me that I wasn't allowed to watch it, but I always heard my dad talking about it because I knew that my dad loved the film, and I heard him talking about it all the time, so I was just like, okay, I'm gonna sneak this shit. (laughs) So I did. I... Uh, the first time I watched Whiplash, I snuck it from my parents. I believe I watched it online on like one, two, three movies or something because I knew that if I tried to watch the movie on any of our streaming services, my parents would be able to see that I had watched the film. So I resorted to piracy, which, you know, don't do that. Don't pirate movies. Support movies. Pay money for movies. We need to support filmmakers. But at the time, I was just so intrigued by the prospect of watching this movie and It also came from the fact that since I heard my dad talking about it so much, I, you know, went on YouTube and I um, didn't watch clips, but I watched a bunch of reviews for the movie, which just hyped me up to watch it even more. So first time I watched it, completely snuck it, and my parents were never the wiser. Um, If any of you are listening to this right now, I'm sorry, but if it helps, the movie had a very positive impact on me in my dreams of filmmaking, and I would hope you're proud of my pursuit of filmmaking. (laughs) All right, uh, let's just, um, let's get into the episode. So Whiplash tells the story of Andrew Neiman, an ambitious young jazz drummer and college student in pursuit of rising to the top of the competition band at Schaefer Conservatory of Music. Terrence Fletcher, an instructor known for his terrifying teaching methods, discovers Andrew and transfers him into the top jazz ensemble, forever changing his life. But Andrew's passion to achieve perfection quickly spirals into obsession, as Fletcher's ruthless teaching methods push him to the brink of his ability and his sanity. Our main cast of characters here are Andrew Neiman, portrayed by Miles Teller. He is our main character. Then we have Terrence Fletcher, portrayed by J.K. Simmons, and he is the ruthless music instructor in the film. Then we have Jim Neiman, played by Paul Reiser. He is Andrew's father. We have Nicole, played by Melissa Benoist, and she is Andrew's love interest. We have Carl Tanner, portrayed by Nate Lang, and he is the current core drummer of the competition band at Schaefer. And then we have Ryan Connolly, 
portrayed by Austin Stowell, who is another aspiring drum, uh, drummer in the school uh, right beside Andrew. Real quick, guys, before we get into it, I would like to let you know that this podcast is now available on all major streaming platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, RSS.com, Podcast Index, Samsung Podcast, Amazon Music, and I also consistently upload each episode to my YouTube channel if no other streaming platform works for you. So if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider following it on any of those platforms and, uh, you know, click the, if you're watching it on YouTube, uh, click the bell notification so you get a notification every time that I uh, release a new episode. And I believe you can uh, do that for Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Just follow me or subscribe to me on any of those platforms and you'll get notified every time I release a new episode. I'm having such a good time with the podcast and I really appreciate everybody who's already listening to it. It truly means the world to me. But with all that in mind, let's get into it. The The film opens with black screen and the faint sound of a snare drum being played can be heard. The drumming gets faster and faster until we smash cut to the opening shot on one big hit. At the end of a dimly lit hallway, a young man, Andrew, sits at a drum set, practicing. Suddenly, an older man, Terence Fletcher, comes in and asks Andrew his name and what year he's in at the school. Andrew says he's a first year. So you know I'm looking for players, Terence says. When Andrew says he does, Terrence simply says, then why did you stop playing? Andrew immediately starts playing again, and when he finishes, Terrence criticizes him for taking his question as a cue to start playing again, even though he didn't technically ask him to. Terrence then asks Andrew to play various drum variations and fills one at a time. We push in closer and closer to Andrew as he plays, assuming that he's doing good. But then we hear a door slam and whip pan to see that Fletcher has left the room, much to Andrew's disappointment. There's a brief moment of hope when Fletcher re-enters the room, but it is quickly shot down when Fletcher just says that he forgot his jacket, which he grabs and then leaves the room once again, completely dismissive of Andrew. Text appears on the bottom left of the screen that says Schaefer Conservatory of Music Fall Semester. Something that this film does exceptionally well is the classic tried-and-true storytelling method of cause and effect. It is implemented expertly throughout the film, and it's something that I'm going to call attention to each time it significantly impacts the narrative, which is quite a bit. It also is the reason why the script is so tightly paced, because there is no fat on this movie at all. It moves at a breakneck pace that is a direct result of its cause and effect method. And I say all this to give context to what I want to point out first with this opening scene. Aside from the finer details of the interaction, I want to call attention to where Andrew is placed emotionally in this scene. This whole movie is essentially a series of ups and downs for him that influence his actions. In this scene, Fletcher, an instructor who Andrew knows about and aspires to impress, hears Andrew playing and enters the room, to which Andrew stops playing. Fletcher mentions he's looking for players and asks Andrew why he stopped playing, and this is our first up. Andrew interprets the question as rhetorical, as most would, and feels a boost of confidence and hope when Fletcher asks it, which is why he decides to start playing again. However, this up immediately becomes a down when Fletcher criticizes this response, and we start to go up again when Fletcher decides to stay and hear more of Andrew's playing, but ultimately it does go back down at the end of the scene when Fletcher completely walks out on Andrew. So take note of the fact that at the end of this scene, Andrew is at a low. 
Fletcher's opinion of Andrew is influencing his actions from the very beginning, and that is going to become more and more clear as we progress further through the film. It's clear to us in this opening scene alone that Andrew craves approval and affirmation as an artist, and when he doesn't get it, it damages his confidence in his craft. Andrew leaves the practice building and walks through the city. A movie theater advertises a movie called Rafifi, and Andrew goes in. He orders concessions at the counter and noticeably avoids making eye contact with the cashier. It's clear that he has feelings for her in some way, but doesn't have the confidence to tell her. In the theater, Andrew sits down next to his father, Jim, and tells him about the fact that Terrence Fletcher saw him play and that it didn't go that well. As the lights dim and the movie begins, Jim tries to comfort Andrew by saying he has plenty of options. And although Jim has good intentions with that statement, Andrew does not take kindly to it at all, very adverse to any option that isn't music. Jim tells him that when Andrew gets to be his age, he'll get perspective, to which Andrew says he doesn't want perspective. Jim pours a box of raisinets into the center of their popcorn bucket, and Andrew avoids eating them, just sticking to eating the popcorn by itself. Jim is confused by this, and Andrew says he doesn't want the raisinets and prefers to eat around them, to which Jim replies with, I don't understand you. You see, this scene establishes Andrew's relationship with his father. From this interaction, we understand that there is a looming tension between them as a result of differing worldviews. We know that Andrew is insanely passionate about his art, so it comes as no surprise when he's so adverse to Jim's suggestion of other options. We can see that Jim, while he loves his son, just doesn't fully understand this passion. When Andrew mentions that Fletcher heard him play, Jim is genuinely excited by it, and when Andrew tells him it didn't go well, that's when Jim suggests different paths. The fact that this was Jim's response to his son's minor disappointment in an artistic experience shows that he has a fundamental misunderstanding of Andrew. This is even stated in the humorous moment with the raisinette, which is seemingly a meaningless line, but actually holds a lot of weight as Jim flat out says that he doesn't understand Andrew. While it's being said under the context of a mundane scenario that isn't seemingly relevant, we can infer a lot from Jim's choice of words. Perhaps it really is just a dumb joke for purposes of comic relief, but I'd say it's safe to assume that Jim is likely using the joke as a way to express something more genuine. Andrew will stop at nothing to achieve his dreams, and this drive is simply not realized by Jim yet. The scene also establishes that Andrew has feelings for the cashier, whose name we do not yet know. In the scene previous to this, Andrew was left on a low and as a result does not have the confidence to ask the cashier out. This will become even more evident later in the film when Andrew finally does find the confidence to ask her out as a result of a confidence boost. After leaving the movie theater, Andrew goes home to his dorm, walking past a college party to get to his room. The next day, he takes a seat at his drum set back at the school to rehearse for the ensemble he's currently a part of. As all the other musicians are getting ready around him, Andrew notices a couple sharing a kiss on the other end of the room. The guy in this couple is Ryan Connolly, one of the other drummers in this ensemble. Andrew appears saddened when he sees this. The other players greet one another, including Ryan. We can hear one of the other band members talking to Ryan, saying that things have been, quote, hurting with Neiman on the kit, implying that Andrew's playing has been bad. Ryan shuts him down, though, and apologizes to Andrew for having to hear that. Andrew brushes it off as no big deal. The band instructor enters and wishes them a good morning, and they begin to play a song called Billy's Anne. 
Suddenly, though, some of the players notice a silhouette in the doorway, which seems to be Fletcher listening in on their playing. Everyone eyes the door, aware of who this shadow belongs to, but the silhouette disappears, much to the disappointment of some of these musicians. Okay, so there's a few things to break down here. One, the couple that Andrew sees. Two, the one band member shot at Andrew. And three, the band's reaction to seeing Fletcher's silhouette outside the door. So, we've already established in the previous scene that Andrew has a thing for the cashier at the movie theater. In this scene, we see Andrew's envy when he sees that Ryan is in a relationship, showing that a romantic relationship is something that Andrew longs for. This also positions Ryan as competition in Andrew's mind. Andrew may not see it this way in this specific scene, but Fletcher will later use Ryan as incentive for Andrew, and it'll become more obvious what role Ryan truly plays in Andrew's life. Of course, after the moment with the couple is when that one band member talks shit about Andrew to Ryan, and Andrew hears it. This further positions Ryan as competition for Andrew, even though Ryan apologizes to him. The fact that the band is happy to have Ryan back on the drums shows that Andrew is not viewed as a good drummer by the band, and that they all think Ryan is a better drummer. Then there's the band's reaction to seeing Fletcher listening to them play. Everyone at this school knows of Fletcher, as he's sort of infamous and feared in a godlike way. Essentially, anyone here would kill to get even an ounce of approval from Fletcher, especially Andrew. The opening scene gave us a taste of what Fletcher is like, even if it was just the tip of the iceberg, so we know that he is extremely critical and selective with his students, helping us to understand why approval from him means so much to all of these aspiring musicians, and therefore... Andrew. Later, as Andrew is walking down the hall, he passes the rehearsal room for Fletcher's band. He stops and peers in as they play, and we see his POV as the camera pans across the room, eventually landing dead on Fletcher, who is staring dead at Andrew with a frustrated expression. This understandably startles Andrew, and he very, very quickly leaves. That evening, Andrew practices even more, looking up at his poster of a famous drummer named Buddy Rich. Andrew stares at his drum set as he listens to a Buddy Rich CD. Yet another example of Fletcher's influence over Andrew, just one unflattering look from him triggered Andrew to go home and stay up all night practicing on his kit. Also take note of the fact that one of the drummers that Andrew idolizes is Buddy Rich, and that will come back uh, to, that, that will come back into play later. I just want to quickly apologize if you guys hear any voices or anything in the background. Um, apparently it is a Friday night, well, not apparently, it is a Friday night. It is getting towards the end of the fall semester, and, um, all the college students on my floor are deciding to sort of throw a little party slash get-together out in the common area, which just so happens to be right outside my dorm, so I apologize if you hear any of that. The next day, Andrew plays with his ensemble, and the instructor looks at Andrew with a very annoyed and confused expression, eventually replacing him with Ryan, another moment in which Ryan is placed as an obstacle for Andrew. All of a sudden, Fletcher bursts into the room and takes over conducting, listening to each part play. He has Andrew play a double-time swing, but stops him very quickly, also wanting to hear Ryan play. When he has heard what he needs to hear, Fletcher asks Andrew to come with him. Room B16 tomorrow morning, 6am. Don't be late, he says in a hushed voice. Fletcher leaves and Andrew goes back to his seat behind the drum kit as Ryan continues to play with the band. The audio becomes muffled as Andrew tunes out the world in this moment of joy. 
smiling to himself at this victory. In this moment, Andrew has received his first genuine moment of approval from Fletcher, and we can see that it gets to him. He, of course, is naive to think that this is all it took, but nevertheless, it's a moment of genuine happiness for him. It's also a little unexpected for us as viewers, since Fletcher wasn't impressed with Andrew in the opening scene, the band Andrew currently plays in thinks he sucks, and his current band director doesn't like his playing, so it's both a surprise for us and him when Fletcher chooses him. Later that night, Andrew goes to the movie theater, not to see a movie, but to finally ask out the cashier. He goes up to the counter, and she says the usual, fully ready to conduct business as usual. But Andrew stops her, and after a moment of thinking, finally asks her out, saying that he always sees her in here and he thinks she's really pretty. It's honestly pretty cute. At first, she appears to be very creeped out, telling Andrew to get out and go away, and Andrew takes this very seriously, apologizing and feeling incredibly embarrassed. But as he starts to walk away, she laughs and tells him she's only joking, and introduces herself as Nicole. They arrange for him to pick her up at 7 on Monday to go get pizza, and Andrew leaves overjoyed from this victory. The fact that Andrew asks Nicole out directly after getting a stamp of approval from Fletcher is no coincidence. The last time Andrew was at the theater, we could tell he wanted to say something to Nicole but didn't have the confidence to. Notice how that moment was directly after him receiving disapproval from Fletcher in the practice room. So, now that Andrew has received the affirmation he desired, he now has the confidence to ask out Nicole, and he succeeds. We are now at a high. The next morning, Andrew wakes up to see that his clock reads 6.03, suddenly remembering that Fletcher demanded he be at room B16 at exactly 6am, Andrew leaps out of bed and rushes frantically to class. When he arrives, however, no one is there. He checks the sign on the door and sees that studio band doesn't start until 9am. He is obviously very confused, but rather than leaving and coming back at 9, he instead enters the room and sits at the drums in complete silence for hours until the other band members finally arrive just before 9. In just a single morning, Andrew's high from the previous evening is tested here. Fletcher's offer was what gave Andrew the confidence to ask Nicole out, but Andrew asking Nicole out is also what made him fail to meet Fletcher's demands. Strangely enough, this moment is never mentioned in the film again, and we are left pondering why Fletcher would have told Andrew to arrive three hours early when not a single person was there. I personally believe it was Fletcher testing to see if Andrew was willing to meet such a demand, but it's left up for interpretation. Andrew, being new in the studio band, is what is called an alternate for the current studio band core drummer, Carl Tanner, who tells Andrew to turn his pages, meaning to flip the sheet music for Tanner when the band plays so he can keep up. At 9 o'clock sharp, Fletcher arrives and all the students stand as fast as lightning, going completely silent and holding their heads down in respect. Fletcher takes his place at the front of the room in dead silence and opens his music as everyone looks down solemnly at their own. He glibly introduces Andrew to the rest of the band, and then they begin playing a song called Whiplash. Tanner yells at Andrew to turn the page as Andrew got lost in the music for a second. Suddenly, though, Fletcher stops the band and says to one of the trombonists, that is not your boyfriend's dick, do not come early. This remark comes out of absolutely nowhere and on first viewing is quite shocking. Fletcher has been established as a stern and intimidating individual already, but this is the first time where we see a glimpse of his absolute vulgarity and relentless teaching methods. 
The band begins playing again, but Fletcher stops them when he hears an out-of-tune instrument. He invites the out-of-tune player to identify themselves, but they do not. Whoever it is, this is your last chance, Fletcher says, before having each section play individually in an attempt to track down the out-of-tune player. When he locates the out-of-tune trombonist, he asks the student if they think they're out-of-tune. Yes, says the student. And Fletcher screams at the top of his lungs, then why the fuck didn't you say so? Yelling, he sends the player out of the room, eliminating him from studio band entirely. After the student has left the room, Fletcher says, For the record, he wasn't out of tune. You were, Erickson, but he didn't know. And that's bad enough. He dismisses them for a break, saying that Andrew will play when they come back. This scene is when we start to truly see Fletcher's brutality as an instructor, and Andrew is visibly very taken aback by it. It's also worth noting that Fletcher enacts this brutality right in front of Andrew, and then almost immediately afterwards announces that Andrew is going to be playing after the short break. This immediately snaps Andrew out of his previous euphoria of merely being in the same room as the studio band. He realizes that the small victory of being chosen for the band is not the end-all be-all. The stakes are much higher now, and he cannot fuck up. During the break, Andrew takes some notes on his music in preparation. In the hall, Fletcher pulls him aside and asks him whether his parents are musicians. Andrew tells him that his father is a high school teacher and a failed writer, and that his mother left when he was a baby. Fletcher tells him, you know, Charlie Parker became Bird because Joan Jones threw a symbol at his head. See what I'm saying? Fletcher tells Andrew that he needs to relax and not worry about what the other guys are thinking, and tells Andrew that he's here for a reason. He makes Andrew say it, I'm here for a reason. It's a very comforting moment, and quite jarring given what we've just seen of Fletcher. Suddenly he's being so nice and encouraging with Andrew, but not exactly. What Fletcher is actually doing here is getting personal information out of Andrew by acting super nice and partial to him. Personal information that Fletcher can use against Andrew later in the film, as we'll see. This moment is also another high for Andrew, and thus gives him another boost of confidence. Andrew returns from break and takes his place at the drums, and he's very secure and confident in himself after his interaction with Fletcher in the hallway. The band plays Whiplash again. Fletcher, in a very kind and supportive tone, tells Andrew to just do his best. The band begins to play, and for a moment, Fletcher really praises Andrew's playing, even comparing him to Buddy Rich, who we already know Andrew idolizes. Andrew lets this get to his head, however, and he hits a spot that he cannot quite play. Fletcher stops him, and they play it again. Andrew cannot get the tempo, and Fletcher has him stop and start over many, many times until it seems that Andrew finally gets it. He continues playing, and all seems okay, until Fletcher, out of nowhere, hurls a chair across the room directly at Andrew's head, who is able to duck just in time, luckily. The band goes completely silent as the chair smashes against the back wall. Fletcher asks Andrew whether he was rushing or dragging with the tempo, and when Andrew says he doesn't know, Fletcher yells at him to start counting. As Andrew counts, Fletcher slaps him in the face every four beats. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging, Fletcher asks Andrew. When Andrew finally tells him that he was rushing, Fletcher screams, So you do know the difference. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. Fletcher continues to berate Andrew, calling him multiple different words, some of them slurs, and asking him to read the tempo correctly. 
When Andrew begins to cry, Fletcher makes Andrew tell the whole band that he's upset louder and louder. After one of the times Andrew says it, Fletcher completely goes off on him, using the personal information about his family that he told him in the hallway to make him feel even worse. Fletcher walks away, telling Andrew to practice even harder. Tanner sits at the drum set, and the band begins to play again. This is probably the most iconic scene in the film, and for good reason. Everything about it is so perfectly crafted. The way it's shot, edited, and written forces the viewer to stay laser-focused on the screen, making it impossible to look away. There's also the shock factor of it. Fletcher throwing that chair is genuinely like a jump scare, and you almost feel like you have to hold your breath as you watch the rest of the scene. It's even more brutal than the other kid we saw him berate. With Andrew, he makes it personal and enacts physical abuse as well. As he sits in a room at school, Andrew looks down at his phone as his father calls. He does not pick up, but instead goes and practices his music. We see him practicing, then lying on his mattress on the floor listening to Whiplash. At the end of one of his practice sessions, Andrew looks down and realizes his hand is bleeding. He plays harder and faster than before, bleeding even more. Andrew is now pushing himself more than he ever has before. Fletcher's abuse did not discourage him, it actually activated him in a way. I mean, Andrew is willing to endure what he has every reason to expect is going to be an absolutely grueling experience, and yet he stays in. The scene shifts and we see Andrew having pizza with Nicole. It's their scheduled date. Andrew comments on the song that's playing in the pizza place, which is called When I Wake, and the couple laughs somewhat awkwardly. You know, whenever I saw you at the theater, your eyes were glued to the floor, Nicole says to Andrew. When Andrew tells her that his father often says that he has trouble making eye contact, Nicole commiserates by telling him that her mother always criticizes her big chin and that her mom wanted to be an actress when she was younger. Andrew asks Nicole what she wants to do professionally, and she tells him that she goes to Fordham and doesn't have a major yet. As Andrew presses her about why she chose Fordham, Nicole gets frustrated and asks him why he chose Schaefer. It's the best music school in the country, he says, plainly. There is an awkward silence, and Nicole tells him that she doesn't like Fordham very much, that she feels out of place because she's from Arizona. This movie takes place in New York, for context. Andrew can relate, and tells her that he doesn't think anyone at Schaefer likes him very much, but he doesn't care. I feel pretty homesick sometimes, Nicole tells him, before adding, it kind of pisses me off when people pretend that they're not in college. Andrew laughs and admits that he still goes to the movies with his dad, as Nicole lightly presses her foot against his under the table. In these early stages of their relationship, we can see that there is some tension between Andrew and Nicole. Andrew is so ambitious, he's ambitious to a fault, and therefore is confused by Nicole's unsureness about her path in life. Though they don't argue, things escalate a little bit before Nicole brings them back down and their conversation becomes lighthearted once again. Though they pass over that little moment of conflict, it is enormous foreshadowing that this relationship is likely doomed. The scene shifts to the Overbrook Jazz Competition. Andrew stands at the edge of the room as his bandmates prepare. Looking out into the hall, Andrew sees Fletcher talking to a man and his young daughter. Fletcher is kind-hearted and gentle as he talks to the girl, asking her if she'll play piano in his band when she gets older. 
As Fletcher comes into the room, he yells at the band members, calling them cocksuckers and berating their playing. Fletcher is so good at keeping up appearances, and my heart breaks for that little girl every time I watch this film. She probably thinks that Fletcher is the nicest man on earth, and has dreams of playing in his band someday, completely unaware that she will likely have to endure the psychological torment of Fletcher one day as well. The band assembles on stage. When Andrew is slow to set up the music stand, Tenor tells him to hurry the fuck up. We see the judges in the audience as Fletcher takes his place at the conducting stand. The band plays their first set without any problems. After they have finished, Tanner hands Andrew his sheet music and tells him to hold on to it for the second set. After putting the music on a chair, Andrew buys a soda from a vending machine in the hall. When Tanner returns and asks for the music, Andrew looks down at where he put it, only to find that it's gone. When Andrew can't find it, Tanner becomes livid, screaming at Andrew, calling him a dumb fuck. Back in the practice room, Tanner tells Fletcher what happened, and Fletcher berates him for ever entrusting his music to Andrew before telling him to go on stage. I can't go on stage. I don't know the charts by heart, Tanner says. Are you fucking kidding me, Fletcher says? But Tanner doesn't know it, saying he needs visual cues and will not be able to play the piece without the sheet music. Andrew, however, steps up and says he knows Whiplash by heart, as we saw him practicing it so repeatedly earlier. Every single measure. Fletcher agrees to let him play, but warns him that if he fucks it up, he's done. They play the song for the judges, and it's clear that Andrew's practice has paid off. Schaefer wins first place at the competition. This moment is one that has inspired a lot of debate among the film community ever since the film's release. The question at the center of it all being, what happened to the folder? The film never comments on what could have happened to it, and it is left up to our imagination. I honestly don't know where I stand on it. Some feel that Fletcher may have taken the folder so that Andrew would have no choice but to play as a means to see if Andrew has truly been practicing as much as Fletcher demanded. Another theory is that Andrew intentionally lost the folder so that he'd be able to prove to Fletcher that he's improved. I think thematically the latter makes the most sense, but I don't think Andrew actually did that. It seems like he just genuinely lost the folder and got to play as a result. Initially, when Fletcher was informed that Andrew lost the folder, I was bracing myself for Fletcher to go off on him again, but was surprised that his anger was solely directed at Tanner. Nevertheless, Schaefer wins the competition, and in doing so, Andrew proves his abilities to Fletcher. Back in the practice room at the university, the pianist tells Andrew not to touch his folder, implying that, regardless of what actually happened, they all think Andrew stole Tanner's folder in order to get the opportunity to play. Shrugging it off, Andrew takes his seat beside Tanner, who tells him, do not touch this kit. When Fletcher enters, he tells Tanner that he is now the alternate and that Andrew is the new core drummer for the studio band. Tanner looks completely devastated as Andrew takes his place. Andrew smirks, however, and the band begins to play. Later, on the bus, Andrew watches a drumming video on his phone. He gets a text message from Nicole telling him to call her when he's back. At his dad's house, Andrew tells his dad that studio band is going very well and that Fletcher likes him more now. His opinion means a lot to you, says his dad, and Andrew agrees, further hitting home how much Fletcher's opinion on Andrew influences his actions. That night, Andrew sits around the dinner table with his dad and some family friends. When his aunt asks him how drumming is going, he announces that he's the new core drummer at school. 
His good news is overshadowed, however, by the arrival of one of his cousins. When he repeats that he's the new core drummer at his school and the youngest member of his band, his cousin asks if the evaluations at his school are subjective. No, Andrew says, very bluntly, and everyone seems lukewarm to their support. When everyone praises his cousin's accomplishments as an athlete, Andrew points out that the team he plays for is only Division Three. Do you have any friends, Andy? His uncle asks, and Andrew tells him that he doesn't because he, quote, never really saw the use. When his uncle questions it, Andrew tells him Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. When his uncle questions whether that's a road to success, Andrew talks back, telling him that Charlie Parker was the greatest musician of the 20th century, and that even though Parker had a tragic life, at least he didn't die in obscurity. Is that what this is about? You think you're better than us? His cousin asks, adding, come play with us. To which Andrew says, four words you will never hear from the NFL. The tension is already high, but the real sting comes when Andrew's father says, and from Lincoln Center, which makes everyone go silent including Andrew. This is a scene that any aspiring young artist can probably relate to to some extent, especially the struggle of being an artist in a family that's much more excited by sports and athletics. I know that it's something I relate to to a T, and I'll probably elaborate on that later. This scene does an excellent job at depicting what that feels like and also showing us that Andrew isn't just disconnected with his father, but his whole family. But Andrew does say a very... Um, impactful philosophy here in this scene. Basically, Andrew's father says that dying drunk, broken, full of heroin at the age of 30 isn't exactly his idea of success. And Andrew rebuts that with, I would rather die drunk, broke, and full of heroin and die at 30 and have people at a dinner table remember me and talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. It is one of the most powerful lines in the film, and anyone who's watched the film, their heart just sinks when they hear him say that. It is truly that powerful. We see Andrew playing with the studio band. After rehearsal, Fletcher asks to speak to Andrew alone. He shows him some music with a double-time swing. That's what got you in here, right? He asks Andrew, and Andrew agrees. Abruptly, Fletcher tells Andrew that he heard another young person practicing late at night and decided to give him a shot. Ryan, from Andrew's former band, pops his head in and says hello. Fletcher tells the two boys he's going to give them each a chance at the chart to see who's better before instructing Andrew to sit down at the drum set. Andrew begins to play, but Fletcher stops him, telling him he's not on the right tempo. He then invites Ryan to take a stab at it, despite Andrew's desire to try again. Ryan plays, and Fletcher says it's perfect and offers him to be the new core drummer. Andrew yells, oh come on, are you serious? That shit? indignantly, and Fletcher leaves the room to take a phone call. Following Fletcher into his office, Andrew tells him he can play the charts, but Fletcher screams at him, not now. If you want the fucking part, earn it. And Andrew leaves enraged. It's already clear to me at this point in the film that Fletcher is only using Ryan as incentive for Andrew, even though he doesn't admit that until much later. And it really gets to Andrew. He is visibly pissed off, and his realization and demand from Fletcher that he earn the part is what drives his decision in the next scene, where we see Andrew and Nicole at a diner. He tells her that he cannot see her anymore, that he foresees that he will get too committed to drumming and neglect their relationship. For those reasons, I'd just rather break it off clean, because I want to be great, he says. And I would stop you from doing that, she asks. Yeah, he replies coldly. 
Nicole begins to get very angry, saying, and when I do see you, you treat me like shit because I'm just some girl who doesn't know what she wants, and you have a path, and you're going to be great, and I'm going to be forgotten, and therefore, you won't be able to give me the time of day because you have bigger things to pursue. He agrees with this sentiment, and Nicole leaves angrily, asking what the fuck is the matter with him. It's clear that Andrew isn't happy about this decision, but genuinely believes it's the right thing to do. And although he puts it very bluntly, I can't deny that it probably is for the best in the end. You can't really argue with his points except for his seemingly low opinion of Nicole due to her future's uncertainty. I feel that had Andrew not broken up with her, they would, as Andrew said, have started to resent each other. It doesn't change the fact, however, that he still communicates this to Nicole in a very cold way, and her anger is absolutely justified. Andrew practices the song Caravan at night. At one point, he grows so angry that he punches through his drum and his hands bleed again. He submerges his bloody hands in ice water, which quickly becomes red. As he drums, he yells abusive language at the drum set, continuously patching up his wounds and taking no breaks whatsoever despite the physical damage the drumming is causing him. The next day, Fletcher introduces Ryan to the band before telling everyone to put their instruments down. He puts a CD on and asks everyone to listen, before launching into a monologue about his experience plucking young players to be in studio band. He talks about one student who was discouraged by other faculty members, but in whom Fletcher believed, and who went on to become a great jazz musician at Lincoln Center. That's the CD they're listening to, and the musician's name is Sean Casey. Fletcher appears teary-eyed as he announces to the class that Sean died the previous day in a car accident. I want you guys to know that he was a beautiful player, says Fletcher, weeping. We can now infer that the phone call Fletcher received earlier was informing him of this very news. The band plays Caravan, but Ryan screws up early, so Fletcher swaps in Andrew. When Andrew doesn't do it correctly either, Fletcher swaps in Tanner, who also screws it up. Fletcher screams and puts Ryan back on drums. We'll stay here as long as it takes until one of you can play in time, Fletcher says. Ryan and Andrew both fail when Fletcher tells everyone to take 10 while he waits for someone to get the drum part right. Later in the night, we see Fletcher coaching Andrew through playing. No wonder mommy ran out on you, get off the fucking kit, he says. After making several homophobic comments about Andrew, Fletcher invites Tanner to try, but he fails too. They all keep failing when Andrew tries his hand again. Fletcher yells at him to keep up the tempo as Andrew plays furiously. Eventually, Fletcher throws a drum against the wall, yelling, Faster! Andrew plays and plays faster and faster, his body soaked in sweat, his hands bleeding so badly it soaks the drum set, until Fletcher finally cuts him off. Deeming Andrew's playing sufficient and saying that he earned the part, Fletcher lets the rest of the band back in and we see that it's almost 2 in the morning, meaning that he berated these drummers for hours waiting for one of them to get it right. There is a notable increase in Fletcher's brutality after Sean Casey's death, likely attributable to Fletcher's grief over having lost someone that he felt was a masterful player that he had trained. I would say that now that Sean is dead, Fletcher will stop at nothing to allow him to live on through another student, which is his incentive to brutally torture Andrew the way he does for the rest of the film. The players leave late at night, and Fletcher tells them to be at the competition at 5pm the following day. Andrew looks completely defeated as he walks home through the shadows. I feel that this change in lighting portrays the shift in Andrew's journey. It used to be that when he got any kind of approval from Fletcher at all, that he was overjoyed and confident. 
But now, even though he earned the part and got Fletcher's approval once again, he also has endured brutal conditions and abuse to be able to receive it, and he likely loathes himself for being so passionate. But he simply cannot help it. He can't turn off his desire to be one of the greats, and therefore must suffer in silence through Fletcher's mayhem. The next day, the day of the Dunnellan competition, we see Andrew on the bus looking at his chart and preparing. Suddenly, the bus gets a flat tire, and they are delayed. Standing on the side of the road, Andrew looks anxiously at his phone. He tries to get a cab, but it will take him longer than he expects, so he rents a car. On his way, one of his bandmates calls and asks where he is. Andrew tells him he's almost there as he speeds down the road, screaming into the phone and slamming down on the accelerator. Andrew arrives and rushes into the competition, where Fletcher tells him that Ryan's going to sub for him due to Andrew being late. Andrew fights back at this news, but Fletcher yells at him and tells Andrew that he, Fletcher, gets to decide who plays. When Fletcher points out that Andrew doesn't have sticks, Andrew offers to go out to his car and get them, but Fletcher insists that he lost the fucking part. Fletcher goes off on Andrew completely when he fights this decision, calling him a self-righteous prick, and referring to the fact that the only reason Andrew is a core drummer is because he misplaced Tanner's folder. Andrew fights back, insisting that the reason he's in studio band is because he's the best, and when Ryan tries to calm him down, Andrew screams at him, Fuck off, Johnny Utah, turn my pages, bitch, which is one of my favorite lines ever in film history, seriously. It is such a serious moment, and yet that line is so fucking funny, and it makes me laugh my ass off every time I watch it. The emphasis of the B when he says bitch, it's just, uh, it's it's so, so good. It's such a good performance, and Ryan's reaction to it is absolutely priceless. Agitated, Fletcher gives him one last chance, yelling, At 5.30, that's in exactly 11 minutes, my band is on stage. If your ass is not on that stool with your own fucking sticks in hand, or you make one fucking mistake, one, I will drum your ass back to Nassau where you can turn pages until you graduate or fucking drop out. By the time you're done at Schaefer, you're gonna make daddy look like a fucking success story, got it? Or... We can let Johnny Utah play the part. You choose. Fletcher's mention of Andrew's father cuts really deep here, as we know that Andrew isn't particularly fond of his father, and Fletcher suggests that Andrew could make him look like a success story, even though he's never achieved any form of success in Andrew's eyes, is likely a massive wake-up call for Andrew. He goes to retrieve his drumsticks, which he lied and said were in his car. In fact, they are still at the car rental place, and he drives all the way back there, picks them up, and begins speeding back to the competition, calling someone on the phone to let them know he's coming. After yelling into the phone and throwing it onto the sea, Andrew is T-boned at full speed by a truck, flipping his car over and completely totaling it. Bloodied and bruised, Andrew looks back at the clock in his car and manages to climb out. The truck driver asks him if he's okay, but Andrew just grabs his drumsticks, still determined to make it to the competition. Confused, the truck driver tries to pull him away from the car, but Andrew runs away in the direction of the venue, staggering into the building covered in his own blood. He walks onto the stage and takes his place at the drum set. Everyone is shocked to see his condition as he is completely battered and covered in blood, but Fletcher nevertheless lets him play. He is playing well at first, but suddenly he drops one of his drumsticks on the ground. Fletcher comes over and yells at him, What the fuck? and he's only able to keep playing for a few moments longer before completely faltering and stopping. Fletcher silences the band as Andrew breathes in pain. You're done, 
Fletcher whispers before heading back to the mic at the front of the stage where he starts to apologize to the audience, when suddenly Andrew kicks the drum set aside and jumps on Fletcher, tackling him to the floor. Some of his bandmates pull Andrew off as he yells, fuck you, over and over again. This entire sequence is cinematic perfection. The unexpectedness of the car crash, the image and concept of Andrew running from the crash covered in blood to play at the competition, the catharsis of finally seeing him let out his rage on Fletcher... I it's all so well done, and it's some of the tightest, most tense filmmaking and storytelling that I've honestly ever seen. The scene shifts to Andrew and his father at a meeting with a lawyer whom Andrew's father has contacted. She asks Andrew, does the name Sean Casey mean anything to you? When Andrew nods, she tells him that Sean Casey didn't die in a car crash, but hanged himself in his apartment. The lawyer elaborates, saying that Sean suffered from anxiety and depression as one of Fletcher's students and suggests that they have grounds to take legal action to get Fletcher fired. We see a flashback of Andrew in his room looking at his letter of expulsion, then watching a video of himself as a child playing the drums. Back at the meeting with the lawyer, Andrew says he doesn't want to take action, but the lawyer and his father both encourage him to speak up. This would not be a public hearing, you know. Fletcher would never know it was you who spoke up. Andrew gets angry with his father for speaking up, but his father insists that he's looking out for Andrew and his best interest. There is nothing to me in the world more important than you. Don't you know that, he says? We see Andrew in his room. He disassembles and packs up his drum kit and takes his poster off the wall. We then see him in the meeting with the lawyer as she asks him what he thinks, to which he responds, just tell me what to say. At this point in the film, Andrew is completely defeated. He's given up on his dreams, and he's forced himself to conform to the low standards that those around him have held themselves to this whole time. The realization that Fletcher lied about how Sean died is another punch to the gut, as we realize that Fletcher's abuse of Sean led him to death by suicide. The fact that Andrew is still willing to defend Fletcher shows that he still fears his disapproval. But since he's completely given up, he, as mentioned, gives in and tells the truth about Fletcher's abusive tendencies. After getting expelled for attacking Fletcher, Andrew works in a sandwich shop for the summer. After work, he walks down the street past a sign for a jazz festival. At Andrew's new apartment, he and his dad watch television, passing popcorn back and forth. And it's a nice touch that they still have their movie nights together, but not at the theater, since Nicole still works there and thus Andrew likely wouldn't want to go there anymore. When Andrew's dad leaves, he tells his son that there are gushers in the pantry and Andrew thanks him. Left alone, he considers texting Nicole, but puts his phone away and goes for a walk. Outside, he passes a street drummer and eats a slice of pizza while he walks. He approaches the jazz club and reads the sign. That night, Fletcher is playing as a guest with a jazz band. Andrew decides to go in and listen. He stands near the door and watches as Fletcher plays the piano with a small jazz combo. As the song ends, Fletcher looks over and notices Andrew watching him. Hastily, Andrew walks towards the exit, but Fletcher approaches him and says hello. They sit and have a drink in the club. I don't know if you heard, I'm not at Schaefer anymore, Fletcher tells Andrew, who asks if he quit. Some parents got a kid from Sean Casey's year, I think, to say some things about me, although why anyone would have anything other than peaches and cream to say about me is a mystery, Fletcher says. Andrew laughs, which makes Fletcher admit that he was a tough teacher. Fletcher then tells Andrew that he saw his purpose at Schaefer as pushing people, quote, beyond what's expected of them. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong or the next Charlie Parker. 
Fletcher tells the story of Charlie Parker's rise to success, how he came back to jazz after being absolutely humiliated, and ended up playing the best solo in the world. He bemoans the fact that no one can seem to handle that level of pathos and pain in the world anymore, saying, and people wonder why jazz is dying. He goes on to pitch a hypothetical retelling of Charlie Parker's story where Joe Jones didn't humiliate him for fucking up a song, and simply tells Charlie, no problem man, good job. And Charlie spends the rest of his days never finding success since he was never pushed to his limits. Fletcher expresses that he feels that that would be an absolute tragedy, and that there's no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Andrew looks at him sadly before asking whether or not he thinks there is a line not to cross, whether his actions could ever discourage someone from becoming a great musician. Fletcher says no, because the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. Fletcher then tells Andrew that he takes no responsibility for his abusive actions, that he just wanted to find a Charlie Parker, and that he really tried, and that is his greatest virtue as a band leader and teacher. Andrew can do nothing but stare at him. Outside on the street, Fletcher asks Andrew if he wants to play with his band for the JVC Festival concert. Andrew first suggests Ryan and Tanner, to which Fletcher finally admits that all Ryan ever was to him was just incentive for Andrew, and he tells him to think about it over the weekend. Now, that conversation in the jazz club is arguably the most important scene in the film and makes Fletcher an even more fascinating character as we get sort of a look into his ideology. The film, in my opinion, does not justify his actions, but it still gives him time to make his case, however skewed it may be. That's the thing, though. His arguments are pretty much inarguable from a philosophical standpoint. He never says anything that isn't true or that doesn't have a significant amount of weight to it. His feelings and motivations are completely understandable, and that's the true dilemma of the film. What is success? How far is one willing to push someone else to help them reach success, and how much is that person willing to sacrifice for it? These are the questions on the film's mind, and it respects the audience by never making a definitive statement as to what is the right answer for any of them. Andrew calls Nicole that evening. He apologizes for his behavior over the breakup and invites her to the JVC show and to get pizza afterwards. She tells him that she has a new boyfriend, but that she might try to come to the performance. I guess maybe I'll see you guys there, he says, hanging up, even though we know damn well she is not going to come at all. Andrew decides to go to the gig at the JVC Festival concert. While other musicians warm up, Andrew looks into the lobby of the venue, which is a very nice building. His dad walks by and Andrew smiles. Fletcher calls the musicians to assemble, telling the newcomers that tonight could change your life. He elaborates that a lot of important people will be in the audience and that based on tonight's concert, the musicians could book really prestigious gigs in the industry. On the other hand, he says, if you drop the ball, you might be looking for another line of work, because the other thing about these cats is, they never forget. The musicians take the stage to applause. Andrew sits down at the drums and looks over at the music on his stand, Whiplash being one of the tracks. Fletcher comes out to conduct, but first makes a stop at the drum set to tell Andrew that he knows he is the one who got him fired by simply saying, I know it was you, which makes Andrew's heart drop, along with our own. Fletcher then heads to the microphone where he introduces the band and states the title of the first track they'll be playing, which is a song that Andrew doesn't know, despite the fact that Fletcher told him the set list for the show was all the songs Andrew already knew. It is now clear that this was all a setup. 
Andrew panics as the band members begin to play, realizing that he doesn't even have the sheet music for the song. He begins to improvise something on the drums, but it doesn't work at all. The bassist asks him what the fuck he's doing, and everyone looks at him skeptically. When the song is over, Fletcher goes over to him and says, well, I guess maybe you don't have it. As the band begins the next song, Andrew runs off stage as Fletcher watches, smiling. As Andrew approaches the door backstage, we see that Andrew's father has come backstage in the middle of the performance. He gives him a hug to tell him it's okay. Suddenly, though, Andrew has a change of heart and goes back to the drum set, taking his place for the next song. As Andrew begins announcing the next song, Andrew interrupts him by slamming into action on the drums, startling everyone with the sudden burst of noise. He tells the bass player that he'll cue him in, and they begin to play Caravan. The whole band joins in. As they play the song, Fletcher walks over to the drum set and tells Andrew he's going to gouge out his eyes. But Andrew hits the cymbal in such a way that it hits Fletcher in the face. Andrew continues to play, and soon enough, Fletcher seems to be on board. The lights go down and the song ends, but Andrew keeps drumming, forcing the lights to come back up. Andrew, what are you doing, man? Fletcher says, coming over and trying to stop the wayward drummer. But Andrew simply says, I'll cue you, and Fletcher nods. Andrew continues to play more and more ferociously. From backstage, his father peers through the door in awe of his son as he continues in a breathtaking elongated drum solo. Fletcher walks over to Andrew as he plays and nods affirmatively. Fletcher then conducts Andrew through an especially impressive fill. Andrew is bleeding on the drum set, covered in sweat, head to toe. He reaches the climax of the solo. There is a brief moment of silence where Fletcher looks at him and smiles and nods, before slamming his arms down to cue Andrew for the finish, and Andrew finishes off his epic solo with a chaotic and ear-piercing finale, taking one final slam down onto the kit before the film cuts to black and the credits roll. This is truly one of the best film finales of all time, no debate. Fletcher trying to sabotage Andrew one last time, only for Andrew to finally take a hold of his own narrative and play, for all accounts and purposes, the best motherfucking drum solo the world has ever heard, makes for an indescribably satisfying conclusion to an absolutely ruthless film. So now that we're done with our beat-by-beat -beat recap of the film, let's talk about the ex existential side of things and how I relate to it and certain topics that the film has on its mind that I would like to discuss. The first being the passion of a true artist and how others don't always understand it and also what we're willing to sacrifice for our art. I am a very, very passionate filmmaker, actor, writer, musician, just artist in general, storyteller, and I have encountered many people who, for example, like through high school theater, for example, it's, it's a perfect example. In the high school theater department that I was in, there are many of us, or were many of us, who were genuinely passionate about it, like in the sense that theater and filmmaking and acting and that whole industry was our genuine lifelong goal and our genuine dream and something that we are willing to put ourselves through the ringer to pursue. But then there's also a lot of people who are just doing it because they enjoy it, but they don't plan on pursuing it afterwards. They just plan on only ever doing it as a hobby, and they're not as passionate about it as someone like me, for example. And it's not that I hold that against anybody at all. I mean, you really can't control at all what you're naturally passionate about. But it is somewhat disheartening to 
see and hear so many of them say that the reason they don't want to pursue it is because there's, you know, they've been told the narrative that there's no money in it, that it's a very hard job to do, and that there's not, there they probably wouldn't be successful, and that the odds of being super successful in the industry are just a billion to one, and it's not even worth it. Which does show to me that not everybody has the same passion for it, because if you are genuinely that passionate about it, as Fletcher says in the film, no amount of of turmoil or suffering would ever discourage the next Charlie Parker, the next great artist of our generation, from becoming the next great artist of our generation. And I think that's what sets me aside from some other people, because I have sacrificed so much to pursue what I pursue. I have lost friends. I have, I mean, you know, I, I gotta acknowledge both sides of the spectrum here. I have, I, I've lost friends. I've unintentionally hurt people due to how passionate I am with my art. But it's the fact that I am willing to go through so much pain to get to where I want to be, to get to where I need to be. I mean, this is my life. Art and artistic expression, that is everything to me. That is the end-all, be-all. It is my entire existential philosophy, artistic expression, what it has done for me, what it can do for others, it just genuinely hits so deep for me, and it means everything to me, and it is my entire being, it's my entire existence. Every fiber of my being operates under that philosophy, and that has led to many conflicts with certain people throughout my life, and it's one of those things where you sort of find out who your friends are and it has nothing to do with whether or not they share your passions it just has to do with the fact that they don't understand like them as people who aren't as i, I don't even know how to describe it the, them as people who aren't as passionate about it for lack of a better term who aren't so deeply invested in it um those people not it, it's about those people not understanding why I do the things I do and why I act the way I act sometimes in an artistic work environment. I had a pretty awful experience with an original play that I wrote and put on in which I was so passionate about it and I made it a point to work with people who were my very close friends, who I loved so dearly with every fiber of my being. And this was my own original work. I wrote this. Nobody knew these characters better than I did. They were all figments of my own mind. They were all a piece of me in some way. And this show in particular was an outlet for me to get a lot off my chest and to express a lot through it. And so I was... Um, I got the privilege to be able to direct it professionally and, and cast it and everything. And because of that, I was like, okay, like I am going to work my goddamn ass off. I am going to be so invested in this. I am going to make this the best fucking thing I've ever made ever. And I'm going to start building my legacy. And not everybody, for lack of a better term, vibed with my approach to things, and I was manipulated to such a degree that I was provoked into saying things that I never 
would have said under any other circumstances. I think certain people saw truly how much it meant to me, or maybe they took advantage of my insecurities due to the fact that they couldn't understand my perspective. They could not understand where I was coming from and why I was so meticulous with every step of the process. Now, yes, there were things that I said that I shouldn't have said. There were actions that I took that that I shouldn't have taken, and my behavior was unacceptable on certain occasions. I will fully admit I have no problem taking accountability for that. But what I'm talking about is things got to that point, and, and this is just something to consider. Things got to that point because of how much I had been manipulated and because I was taking in, taken advantage of. Because, guys, full honesty here, I am a very easy person to take advantage of. I am a very easy person to manipulate. I really, really am. And I don't think that all of these people um, intentionally ever did anything. In fact, I would say the majority of them didn't. But, but certain people... I just have to sit back and wonder, I still have so much love in my heart for them, and I was so vulnerable and honest with them, and so just myself with them, I I was so trusting of them, and then everything crashed and burned due to that disconnect between me and them when it comes to what artistic expression truly means to us. And the lengths to which we are willing to go to practice it, to exercise it, and to put it out into the world. And I worked my goddamn ass off, and I it resulted in a show that I am still to this day insanely proud of. And I am so proud of myself and everybody who worked on it for coming together and making it. But it cost me the closest friends of my entire life. I mean, these the, the people that I lost as a result of that production are people that quite literally saved my life. And now they all actively openly hate me and talk shit about me to people who are still close friends of mine, which, you know, that's fucking terrible. Like, Imagine going to school every day and just having to hear people shit talk your best friend and my boyfriend who is still at that school having to endure the mental turmoil of hearing everybody just berate somebody who he loves so dearly. I mean, in my mind, even though I have so much love in my heart for these people still, that is just absolutely cruel. And I'm sort of discussing both sides of it here, how my pursuit and full and complete dedication to the meticulousness of that show caused me to say and do things that cost me my friendships and cost me my relationships with the people that I loved the most, but also the actions that have been taken after the fact five months later, still to this day, and how that is affecting the people that still love me and still see me for me and actually know my side of the story. Um, 
I just think this film really brings that out of me. It makes me think about that a lot, and it makes me think about the role that I played in losing those people and the role that they played in, um, well, taking a pretty awful toll on my mental health. It has not left me. I am completely traumatized by it. And I I assume that they, they probably don't think that I'm aware of everything that they've said and are continuing to say, but I am. And uh, they don't know that. But it has affected me so badly. I mean, I'm dealing with so much as a freshman in college. I'm going through so much financial hardship at the moment, just trying to make it in this fucking industry. And I already have diagnosed anxiety and depression. And it has been my biggest struggle throughout life. I I talked about that in some more detail in my episode on the whale. And just purely by nature of being a freshman in college, my mental health was declining and still is at an all-time low. And then, to add on to that, everything that I'm aware of that these people who... I still love with all my heart are saying about me people that I would never shit talk to anybody and that I have never shit shit talk to anyone. I have still to this day never said a bad word about any of them, never spread anything about any of them. And it just sort of forces me to realize that maybe these people never actually loved me the way that they claimed they did. Um, because a true friend checks on you. A true, a, a true friend comes to you and asks for your side of the story. And I spent so much time apologizing for things that... I, I don't even know how to describe. I apologize for everything on my end that I actually considered to be wrong... But there's other things that have just been completely made up, completely embellished to to the point where they're not even like 5% factual anymore. And it's just the fact that it's being perpetuated by people who were once my best friends in the whole world and who, as I keep saying, still mean everything to me. It's fucking devastating. And I will not lie, it has had a horrible effect on my mental health. It drove me to a point, um, just over a month ago at this point, I would guess, to where I was in the bathtub, razor blade in hand, wrists bleeding, um, on the phone with someone who is still one of my closest friends, and her having to talk me out of ending it because the pain of realizing that I hurt the people that I loved the most, I just couldn't take it. It was too much. It's still too much sometimes. And it's, it's, it's ugly. It's still ugly. I'm still struggling with this shit and moving on from friendships that are the reason you're even still fucking alive is not easy. And it's going to take me 
probably the better part of my life to fully let go and to fully move on. And yeah, this movie, (laughs) yeah, we're still talking about a movie, believe it or not, uh, if you remember. Whiplash truly makes me ponder that stuff to such a high degree. Um, it, I look at Andrew being an outcast from his family and peers and how his family just doesn't understand how passionate he is. They don't understand why he is so thirsty for this dream. And I just feel that to the utmost degree, my work has tried to be people have people who I love in my family have tried to censor it silence me obscure my artistic vision and I don't I wouldn't say they have malicious intent they have my best interest in mind but that's why it's a dilemma because they're not doing it with any ill intent they want what's best for me but it's that fundamental misunderstanding of the 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 way my passion works, like what fuels it and how much it truly means to me, how it affects me, how it saves me, that causes their actions that are in an attempt to support me to be actually very dehumanizing. And it's that discussion of how passion can become obsession and at a very high cost. It can cost you your family It can cost you your friendships, your relationships. It can cost you so, so much. And it's all fueled by this drive to be heard and remembered. Because we are people, and I'm very inspired by the documentary Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift uh, documentary, where she is talking about all the turmoil that she's going through when she's still like right in the middle of it. And she states something that is such a truth of people who are pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. That being we are people who got into this line of work because we are intrinsically insecure because we feel that the the only times that we feel that we're not a complete piece of shit are when people clap for us when we get those stamps of approval for our work as an artist because we hate ourselves so much so much that the only time that we can feel that we're actually fucking worth something is when we get approval from other people over our pieces of art that are expressing our deepest and darkest emotions and I will never, ever stop pursuing my dreams of artistic expression. It is everything to me. And it has done so much for me that so many people out there will just never be able to understand. And I am so thankful for the people that do. Lucas, my boyfriend... We're, we have been in a long-term committed relationship. We're about to hit our one-year-and-three-month anniversary. Milena, who is my best fucking friend in the entire world. Kendall, also one of my best friends. If any of you are listening to this, Presley, you guys know who you are, and I thank you for sticking with me and for understanding me and for 
loving me and caring about me, for sticking with me through thick and thin. You have seen me at my worst and you still chose to love me. And I am forever indebted to you guys and I will never, ever be able to repay you. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying. I am moving on to bigger and better things. And I'm actually fairly optimistic for the road ahead. I am. And to anyone listening who feels that they are worthless, who is pursuing a career as an artist and artistic expression means to you what it means to me, to any people of that nature listening, I want you to know you can do it. You can make it. You are worth it. You are important. You are worth people's time and your work is incredible. And it is you. It is entirely you. And it is worth people's time. And the world deserves to know you and know your name. And you can make it out. There is a way out. There's a path to success and you will find it. I'm still working on traversing my path but I'm getting there and I couldn't do it without the support of all those people that I just mentioned hell even the people that I wasn't speaking so fondly of um have a role to play in this they have absolutely contributed to my never-ending drive to be great and to be heard and seen because the value of artistic expression and what it can do for people is too often understated and not discussed. And I just hope that in some way the art that I make can save people the way that art that other people made saved me. Whiplash showed me that success as an artist and greatness does not come easily and it comes at a cost. It taught me that my pursuit of the arts is one that I need to take with caution, careful not to let my passion turn into a self-destructive obsession. It inspired me to fight with everything I've got to achieve my dreams. And that is what Whiplash did for me. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for your time and your support, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Um... If you haven't watched Whiplash, I just fucking spoiled the entire fucking thing, but it doesn't matter. Still go and watch it. It's one of those movies that I think everybody should watch at least once in their lifetime. So guys, to wrap it up, once again, my name is Xavier Reichbaum, and this has been the Headspace Podcast.